This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today I'm delighted that my guest is John Baer. John is Regis Chair in Humanity at the University of Aberdeen. He's a professor of theology, works a lot in Christian thought. Um, He's an ordained priest uh, in, in the Orthodox tradition, and he is very well known, um, as listeners will doubtless be aware, for his studies in patristics, early Christian thinking, and increasingly in biblical scholarship as well. John, it is a delight to have you on the show today. We're really pleased that you're here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's really good to be with you, Crawford. Well, thank you for your time. Um, John, I've been reading your work really since the way to Nicaea, um, and have been, well, I, I came to it late. I didn't read it in 2001. But I have been reading your work for a long time, and, and um, not only your, your critical, constructive, theological, historical work, but also some of the recommendations you've been pushing our way in terms of early Christian sources, um, and obviously the St. Vladimir's series that, 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 that you look after. Now, you, you've had really a, a, a distinguished academic career, both in uh, the United States and the Netherlands now uh, as Regis Professor of Humanity at Aberdeen. Can you tell us a little bit about your story up to this point? Oh, goodness. So I grew up in, in England, uh, did my doctoral work in Oxford with Metropolitan Callistos, now, now of blessed memory. Um, and when I was finishing that, I got invited to go and teach at St. Vladimir's in New York. I met my wife in Oxford. We we went up in 89. We got married in 91. 93, we went off to St. Vladimir's. Um, and I was there for some 25 years, served as dean for 10 years. After stepping down from that, um, you know, we were still young enough to have a second lease of life and do something different. And this possibility opened up in Aberdeen, where I think I've got the coolest title, the Regis Professor of Humanity. Not humanities, but humanity. So given my interest in what it is to be human, you know, it really is the best title. So a a chair that's in um, humanity in a faculty of divinity speaks very much to some of the principal themes in this book, doesn't it? Totally, totally. What it is to be human and and all the rest of it. And that's something I've become increasingly fascinated with over the last years, as readers of my work will know. And in fact, I've got a new book coming out next year, which will be a new critical edition and translation with a huge introduction of Gregory of Nyssa's work, which has been called On um, on the Making of Man, but really the proper title is On the Human Image of God. And it's, it's, it's fascinating, but we're not here to talk about that. When that comes up, have another chat. <laughs> well, let, let, let's chat about that at the end, John, because that, that's something I'd be really keen to know about. So John the Theologian and his Paschal Gospel came out with Oxford University Press in 2019, but the paperback is quite new um, this, and affordable, yes. Uh, and the subtitle is A Prologue to Theology, which we want to think a little bit about later on. But tell us how you came to this project, the John the Theologian and his Paschal Gospel project. The roots of this lie in many of your previous publications, don't they? So so you mentioned um, reading The Way to Nicaea. 
Yeah, and that was initially going to be a series. It's followed by a book called The Nicene Faith. And I was going to do a book, maybe one day I still will, called To Chalcedon and Beyond. And that's going to count on the trajectory. Um, but when preparing for that third volume, um, I did a work on Diodor of Tarsus and Theodore of Mopsuestia because I had to prepare their texts, edit, translate them as preparatory work to doing that volume. And as I was doing all of that, I realized that um, to do it fully adequately, I'd also have to take account of Evagrius. This is a long story, but never mind. I'd also have to take account of Evagrius. But if I was going to do Evagrius properly, I could only do that if I really went back to Origen, you know, Origen to Evagrius, and really get to grips with what Origen was doing. And that resulted in the that new edition translation of On First Principles, with really quite a different reading of Origen in that. And then having done that, I realized that the kind of thing I was finding in all of these writers was quite different to what we've been given to expect, especially regarding the term incarnation and what that is all about. Yeah. You know, that was brought in on me when I translated Athanasius' work on the incarnation. So we tend to think of incarnation as the second person, the Trinity, the eternal word of God, being born of Mary um, to become human. Yeah, in fact, we really are conflating the prologue of John, John one fourteen, with in, which doesn't speak about a birth, with infancy narratives, which don't speak about the about the word of God. We're conflating it. We've got our picture, but more, more strikingly, Athanasius in his work on the incarnation um, doesn't really even mention the birth of Jesus from Mary. He never mentions the name Mary, and in fact, he writes that work to show. To, he says to show that the one on the cross is the word of God. That's what the whole work is aiming to demonstrate. So his understanding of what is meant by incarnation is quite different to what we tend to think. So with all of that, having got back to Origen, having spent so much time with Irenaeus, it dawned me that what I really had to do was to go back to John himself and really study John. And then as I did that, so many fascinating things opened up. Um, there was a student of Bultmann, Ernest Kaiserman, who wrote a book on John in, I think, the 60s, translated into English in the 70s, called uh, the, La the, the Testament of Jesus. And in that, he actually says that for John, the moment of incarnation has so overshadowed everything. You know, if you compare John to the Synoptic Gospels, well, John is, you know, th this divine Lord striding over the earth, unmoved by anything. I'm from above, you are from below. Not the kind of hidden, suffering Messiah we see in the Synoptics. So he said, for John, the, the moment of incarnation has so overshadowed everything that he's got no real place for the Passion. <laughs> and that he only includes a passion narrative basically as a nod to tradition because he has to. Yeah. Well, I know from my, my, my sojourn, my, my th 30 year sojourn in the second century, that in fact, um, the first Christians, in fact, the, the, the first Christians to have an annual feast of Pascha were the disciples of John. Yeah. And in fact, they were the only ones until about the middle of the second century from all the evidence we can see. So clearly something has gone dramatically wrong in understanding, oh, in understanding the gospel. If that's where serious German scholarship was at that time, it just doesn't match with the historical reality we know. So I then took it upon myself to read as much of 20th century scholarship on John New Testament scholarship as I could, 
And then the only way I could really figure to bring all of this together was to do the work basically as three parts. So the first part essentially is a work of like historical study. You know, my, my basic field, patristics, what Irenaeus, how Irenaeus, how Origen, how all the others were reading John and what they thought of him. Then taking that historical information into discussion and dialogue with contemporary scriptural scholarship. Now, things obviously have moved a long way since Bultmann and Kaiserman, and there's been fascinating work, especially by John Ashton, on the Gospel of John as an apocalyptic gospel. He modified that in various ways, but but essentially much more interesting work going on. So I was able to do that. Um, also, John as being liturgical gospel, you know, that it's, it's constructed, in, in one way of looking at it, is as a construction of the temple across the whole of the gospel, yeah? And then the culmination of this being the human being that is Christ. We'll talk more about that. So part two was bring those two discourses into discussion. And then I thought, well, you know, why not? Um, Somebody recommended to me about 15 years ago that I have a look at Michel Henry, a French phenomenologist. And I started, he recommended the book, um, I Am the Truth. And it was just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. My first degree was in philosophy, specializing in phenomenology. I hadn't touched it for 20 years or so. So to go back and just read that, it just blew my mind. And so what I then did was to spend, I don't know, about 15 years slowly rereading the philosophical corpus from Descartes onwards, just to try and understand how Michel Henri got to do what he was able to do in that strictly philosophical line of phenomenologies, you know, so examining especially Kant, um, uh, 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 gosh, people like Fichte, um, all the way through to Husserl, Heidegger, Michel Henry. I couldn't quite figure out how to bring that third part into discussion with the other two parts. But Michel Henry's last three works before he died a few years ago were basically meditations on the Gospel of John, done in this phenomenological key. So the way I presented it was as three different groups of readers of John. Irenaeus, Origen, the earliest period, modern biblical scholarships, uh, and then Michel Henry. Different readers of John, and then trying to bring them into a constructive dialogue with a way of looking at theology and how to do theology. Hence the subtitle is A Prologue to Theology. (laughs) There we go. Brilliant. So, I mean, the, the the philosophical, theoretical angle is is very important to the book, isn't it? You begin with Quentin Skinner, thinking about the transmission of ideas, ideas, elements, and so on. Um, we end up towards you know t- t- towards the end with that much more sustained reading um, through um, Michel Henry. What what does this theoretical approach or philosophical approach add to the way we might otherwise be reading John's Gospel? Um. So there are two things. First of all, uh, Quinton Skinner's not really of that philosophical line. His work was on methodology and the idea that when we're studying historical sources, we should not be beguiled by the idea of what he, the, the mistake of what he calls a mythology of doctrine. And essentially what that means, he's not, he's not a theologian, he's an early modern political historian. But his point is, we have come to think of disciplines in our case, Christian theology, as being constituted by particular doctrines. 
You know, we, we all do. Obviously we do. Yeah, and, you know, it'd be really hard to think of Christian theology without a doctrine of the Trinity, a doctrine of the Incarnation, a doctrine of Christology, a doctrine of ecclesiology, whatever, all of these things. But we have to remember that the figures we're reading didn't, yeah? You know, it's not as if John was writing his gospel thinking about how to lay out, first of all, a Trinitarian theology in verse 1, then a bit of Christology, and then a bit of ecclesiology. That's not how he's doing it. And I would say they weren't doing it through really through the whole of the patristic period they weren't thinking in that kind of system really i think that's a kind of a phenomena of the second half of the second millennium you know that kind of systematization combined with a different way of reading scripture which makes a mess but there we go um so quintus skinner with that but michel henry um readers, people who are listening to this and pick up the book to read it, if you haven't got background in that kind of philosophical work, it is really difficult. Yeah, Um, I think I've been able to give a good introduction to Michel Henry, which if you're patient with it, is explanatory, but it is such a different mode of discourse. So it's really hard to put the three together. I'm not sure whether I really succeeded in that. But what Michel Henry does in his phenomenology is to basically... So so phenomenology has primarily been focused on things that appear, phenomena, how they appear to us in the world in which we appear and how appearances are constituted by mental intuition um, and intentionality and all of that kind of thing. But Michel Henry points out that prior to appearance... We've got the fact that we are in life. We're living before we already think of ourselves as a constituting subject. And it's this horizon of life, um, which is the, the, the arena in which God reveals himself. Yeah, You know, we often talk about um, God has revealed himself in Christ. It's so easy to say language like that. But that revelation of God in Christ is not equivalent to the appearance of yet another object within the horizon of the world. You know, I look out my window, I can see a tree, I can see a car. We don't say, oh, look, there's a tree, there's a car. Oh, there's a son of God walking down the street. Yeah, It's only after Christ's passion that the disciples finally understood and recognized who he truly is. And that's done through the opening of the scriptures and the breaking of the bread, you know, Luke 24, at which point he disappears from sight. So the phenomenality of God's revelation in Christ is not the phenomenality of the way things appear in the world under the light of the sun. Rather, it's in, in thy light we see light. So how does that all work? Yeah, And that really is in the experience of life, in the horizon of life. I am the life, Christ says. Um, and it's in this experience of life that we truly know what flesh is. So Michel Henry has got a whole thing about what flesh is. Flesh is not just simply the meat that's surrounding our bones, but flesh is really that um, affective aspect of our bodily existence which we experience not in the horizon of this world, but within the horizon of living. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Very good. So, so John, you, you ended up there with Luke 24, the disciples in the little home in Emmaus, and that moment of revelation. And one of the things you emphasise in the book is that while that might be where the synoptics end, that's where John's gospel begins. 
Now, you mentioned Kesemann, apocalyptic being the mother of all Christian theology and so on. And that that that, that idea of apocalypse is something that you are or unveiling or revelation, yeah. something that you're really interested in expounding. Oh, fascinated by. And I, I don't think I've actually said this on any podcast or, or written about it yet, but I think our biggest problem is that we've got a book called the Bible. Okay, and I expect readers, listeners are falling off their chair. But what I really mean is we've got a book called the Bible, you know, a single volume printed edition that we can carry in our pocket, which is the invention of the printing press. Just straightforward, it's the invention of the printing press. Yes, there were the great big codices, Codex Sinaiticus and so on before that, but they were so few and far between. Nobody had a copy of them. Most churches didn't have a copy of them. <clears throat> and because we've got a book called the Bible where it's nicely divided for us into Old Testament followed by New Testament, we read it as Old Testament, you know, from Genesis onwards, all the things that happened, building the temple, destruction of the temple, exile, all these kind of things. And then we have the New Testament. If we want to know about Jesus, we turn to the New Testament where we start with the synoptics, the life of Jesus, John does his own thing, then we get to Acts, then we get to Paul. And we think that because we're reading on a line like that, we're being historical and therefore being true. But that is simply not the case. The case, historically, hermeneutically, and so on, is that we've got the scriptures. Yeah, and I really want, I'm trying to urge people to stop using the term Old Testament. If the term scripture was good enough for Christ, for Paul, for the evangelist, for the Nicene Creed, it's probably a good enough term. It's the scriptures. To call it Old Testament relegates it. It's the scriptures, which, however they were written and gathered together, were there at the time of Christ. Paul knew them inside out, the disciples knew them. But reading those scriptures didn't lead them to Christ. It led Paul to encounter uh, to persecute Christians. He encounters Christ, you know, whatever you want to say about that, he encounters Christ, and now he reads scripture differently and says the veil has been lifted. So the primary starting point is the passion and the unveiling of the scriptures. Then you have the proclamation of the gospel. Then you've got Paul's letters which refer to the gospel, never quite tells you exactly what it is explicitly, but is largely concerned with correcting errors. Okay? And then you've got the gospels after Paul's letters. Yeah? And strictly speaking, you shouldn't even say you've got the gospels in the plural. You've got one gospel in four different versions. You've got Matthew's version, Mark's version. Yeah? And so the word gospel there doesn't mean the life of Jesus. It means the gospel, which has been proclaimed, the crucified and risen one, all of that, been proclaimed for the last, whatever, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah? So that actually is a historical order. If you want to be true to history, that actually is a historical order. You start with the passion, the unveiling of scripture, you encounter the Christ through these scriptures. So the primary texts for knowing Christ are Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, Psalms, all of that, now read, unveiled, in the context of liturgy, the breaking of the bread, embodying the risen Christ, and so on. Um, that's a primary. Then you've got Paul's corrective letters. Then you've got the Gospels. That's a historical order. That's a hermeneutical order. And that's, for what it's worth, that's a liturgical order. Typically, liturgical traditions read Old Testament scripture, followed by Paul, followed by an extract from the Gospel. And it's also noteworthy that when reading an extract from the Gospel, in liturgical traditions, you don't say, this is part of the gospel. You, know, you read, you know, the healing of the blind man, whatever, a woman bent over, whatever it might be, and you say, this is the gospel. 
which means that every episode is a proclamation of the gospel of the crucified and risen one. Very different way of reading it. And I think that only, you know, if that's historically the case, hermeneutically the case, liturgically the case, why would you read it in any other way? Yeah, And so it is really this apocalyptic, simply meaning the unveiling of scripture, you know, apocalypse, unveiling, lifting the veil off, in the light of the crucifixion and resurrection, that's a starting point. Yeah, So Kaisman is right. Apocalyptic is the mother of all Christian theology. Not apocalyptic as in the sense of, I know, world-ending, uh, apocalyptic messianism or whatever else it might be, but unveiling. The unveiling, the revelation of the mystery of God revealed in Christ. The mystery hidden from eternity, now revealed. So, John, one of the things that listeners are going to do now is get their little Bibles and disbind them and, and, and begin to rearrange the contents. But one of the questions they're going to have when they do that is where should they put Revelation, the Apocalypse? Because one of the things that you hint at in the book, it, it, you glance at it along the way, is that you prefer the early dating, you know, Peter Leithert's ICC commentary and so on, the early dating of Revelation um, um, b- before the, the fall of the temple, which might then... I'm, can ask you to speculate because I think you hesitate a little bit at this, but you might then need to reconfigure the relationship between John's gospel and the so-called um, revelation uh, of St. John the Divine. If, if the revelation, the apocalypse, comes before the gospel, how does that help us understand the gospel both as apocalypse and as paschal text? Yeah, so I'm totally convinced following all the writers in the early church up to mid to end of the third century, that they're both written by the same John. Okay, so I'm just taking that that for granted. Okay, you may disagree, but they were all convinced, so let's try and see it on their terms. Fine. Um, One of the mistakes we do is we think of the apocalypse as being an example of the genre apocalyptic literature. Yeah, but it's not. Okay, and it's actually a circular argument. The Apocalypse of John is the only one to call itself an apocalypse. You know, the opening word, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's the only one to do that. Enoch doesn't, Second Baruch doesn't, all the others don't. They start to call themselves apocalypses in the third, fourth century, Apocalypse of Abraham and Isaac. It becomes a title after that. So what we then do is we create a category called apocalyptic. We include other works within it. And then we explain John on the basis of the other works, John's Apocalypse on the basis of the other works, which is circular. Yeah. So um, we've got to then, and John doesn't fit that category because all the other works are a non, a pseudonymous. Yeah. Enoch, you know, it's, it's ascribed to a mythological figure, early figure from Genesis, you know, whereas John's doing it in his own name, in the present, I, John, in the Lord's day, boom. Yeah. So it's completely unlike the others. Um, so I think we should take the word apocalypse primarily in its literal meaning, unveiling. Yeah. Not this belongs to apocalyptic literature. This is an unveiling. So the way I put it in my book, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not settled yet on this, but the way I put it in my book, if we're to understand John as the unveiling, then what is the veil? And I suggested that, in fact, the veil is the gospel of John. Okay, they're both written by the same John, the gospel written by the one standing at the foot of the cross, the apocalypse written by the one standing at the foot of the throne, and they're the same John in the same place, but looking at it in two different registers. 
So on one register, if you like the horizon of the world, it appears that everything's ended in defeat. But unveil that and you have um, what has actually been happening in and through all of this, a cosmic battle that's been formed, the forming of the body of Christ, the woman giving birth to God, all of those kind of things. This is actually what's going on in this narrative which apparently ends in defeat. So that's the way I do it. Um, With regard to the apocalypse coming first, Actually, before I, before I go into that, I, Peter Leithart's book hadn't actually come out when I wrote my book. Yeah, I mentioned it in the book, but it came out too late for me to do anything with it. I really love what he does, which is to say it's a two-part work, like Luke and Acts. Yeah, John isn't followed by Acts, John's followed by the Apocalypse, and he says it's a two-part royal romance, with the gospel being the preparation of the bride, bride, bridegroom, the Apocalypse being the preparation of the bride, the gospel starting off with an announcement of a wedding on the third day, the apocalypse ending up with uh, eschatological marriage. Yeah, so a two-part royal man. I think it's absolutely brilliant and totally persuaded by it. But with regard to the apocalypse being earlier than the gospel writing, not sure, not sure. I suspect, uh, first of all, the reason for dating the, the reason for dating it earlier is that the only reason for dating it later is a misreading of a line in Irenaeus. Yeah, it's John who appeared almost in their own time, not the vision was seen almost in their own time. Okay? That's the only reason why people have pushed it to the 90s. And perhaps also because they wanted to kind of marginalise it away from the simple writings of the Gospels written by Galilean fishermen and all the rest of it. But in fact, it really belongs in the time of Nero. And actually... That kind of literature is much more what you would expect in Second Temple Judaism, not a nice biography. Yeah, that's really what you, the kind of thing you'd expect. So what we've got here is the unveiling of this Jesus Christ using all the language of Scripture. It's the most scriptural book, scriptural Old Testament, scriptural book of all of the books of the New Testament. And so it really is painting that mosaic, like Irenaeus would speak about, the mosaic of the king using all of the different imagery you get from Scripture and depicting it that way. You know, if it's right to say that the primary thing is the unveiling of Scripture, well, this is what you see, yeah? And then after Matthew, Mark, and Luke do their thing, well, starting with Mark... And the really interesting question is, why does Mark transform this proclamation into a biographical narrative? Okay, And then John ultimately does his own one to complement it, something like that. Mm. John, I'm conscious we're running a little bit out of time, but you did tantalise us at the beginning with a, a hint of your next project. I wonder if you could tell us something more about that. Oh, Gregory's work uh, on the human image of God is mind-blowingly fascinating. Um, and I think what he's actually doing in that is playing off the Timaeus. And we know that Gregory is able to play off the Platonic and imitate their forms. He wrote a dialogue called On the Soul and Resurrection, which is a, a dialogue between him and his dying sister Macrina. Yeah, clearly it's imitated upon the fighter, just, just no doubt about it. Yeah? Changing content, obviously, but the, but the genre. Um, so in Gregory's work, going back to Timaeus, so Timaeus's speech is really divided into three parts. First of all, he gives the ideal description of creation. A lot of things to say about that, 
but we let be for another time. Then halfway through, he stops himself and said, well, so far, I've described the work of the Demiurge according to Noose. I've also got to give an account of um, the straying cause and how reason persuaded necessity. There's a whole thing about that. And then right at the end of the work, a whole block of it, which people just really pay no attention to. One of the best commentators, Cornford, said it's just, you know, it's just almost unpalatable. The last part of the work, he says, I've now got to bring these two accounts together under a single head. And what he then does is to describe in ancient medical terms the physical structure of the human being and how the arteries relate to the heart and the lungs and whatever, all of that. So Gregory does the same thing. In the first 15 chapters of the work, he describes a human being in beautiful, beautiful terms, okay, as the apex of the whole creation, as a creation is ready made for the ruler to come into it, but we rule through our weakness, we've got to persuade other things to, all that kind of stuff. Um, and he actually describes Genesis 1 as being Moses's, Moses's anthropogony, yeah, account of the birth of the human being, and he describes how nature makes an ascent by way of steps from the lower to the higher. So you start off in Genesis 1, you've got you know the dry earth, then you've got plants, then you've got animals, then you've got the human being. Nature is making an ascent through the different levels of soul, different levels of animating power. It does all of that. Chapter 16, he says, if, that, if, if the human being is the image of God, where do we actually see this? Look around you, and what you see are miserable, suffering people falling sick and dying. Yeah. Yet God um, is immutable, unchangeable, all the rest of it. So how, how can Scripture say that the human being is in the image of God? Yeah, it, you know, Is Scripture lying, or, or is our eyesight lying, or how do you reconcile these two? And so you enter into a whole other problem, and this whole second block of the work is like Plato's and the Timaeus's second block, which is how God is persuading us through the whole economy. Yeah, you know, we start we start off as children, we, we got to grow, we got to grow, and, and all of that. So God's persuading us through the whole economy. The whole economy from beginning to end is God's pedagogy. Okay, but even more than that, he says that Genesis one twenty seven, the hum the the human being in the image of God is the pleroma of human beings in its totality. Yeah. So th human beings from beginning to end, yeah, we, we, we might think, you know, there's an end, there will be an end, there's going to be a fixed number of human beings because there will be an end, and therefore all these fixed all this number, the complete number of human beings together constitute the human being that's in the image of God. That's pleroma yeah. is fullness, isn't it? The fullness of the yeah. fullness of all human beings together is um, the human being in the image of God. Uh, von Balthasar sums it up nicely. He says, the total humanity is a total Christ. Yeah, it's, it's just mind-blowing. But that means it takes time. Yeah, So it takes time to go from, you know, the first human being is to multiply, 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 to reach that pleromatic number, which is the fullness of the body of Christ. So the economy is... The, the time of the economy, the time of creation, is the time that's coextensive with the production of the human being. Okay, two different analyses. And then he brings it together. Both these together are meant as analyses not of who we actually are. 
And so both of these movements actually recapitulate it in our own life. So we start off as a seed deposited in the womb, growing by the power of growth and nutrition, just like a plant. When we're big enough and our soul is strong enough, animating power strong enough, we're then born into this world of sense perception, where we continue to grow, both in body and soul. Um, In body is obvious, you know, we learn to walk, we grow and all the rest of it. But in soul, it's also that we've got to develop our rational faculty. We come out into this world of sense perception, and our eyesight's attracted by things of sense perception. Yeah, But as we know from Genesis and throughout the tradition, not everything that appears to be good is good. Yeah, But we don't know that until we learn through that and through its experience of of things of sense perception, which attract us in themselves, but then cause pain in various ways, that we learn discernment. Okay, So that's our growth in this world. Um, and then he finishes the work by saying, so we must put off the old man and put on the image of the one being renewed, the one being renewed in the image of God. Yeah? But he continues in another work by saying, actually, we are nothing but fetuses in this world. We're not yet human. Yeah? We've still yet to undergo that final transformation, our birth through death into the life of the human being. Okay. It's just it's just mind blowing. And then there's whole lots of other stuff in that about you know, what it is to be male and female. Yeah, because you know, if Adam and Eve are male and female, if if at the beginning we're male and female, at the end in Christ there's neither male nor female. So what what's going on with all of that? Yet it's only through male and female that we're able to multiply and reach the fullness of the number. Really fascinating stuff. So we'll have to wait a year or two until we can read more of this in detail, John. But listen, it's been great to have you on the show today, uh, Father John Baer, Professor of Humanity at the University of Aberdeen, Regis Professor of Humanity, I should say, University of Aberdeen, uh, appointed by the late Queen. Um, um, it's just been a delight to have you, and thank you for your time. Well, it's been really my pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. And thanks to everyone else for tuning in today. Uh, we've been on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.